0: You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. So Psalm 128, which was read for us by Claire, it, it very clearly paints this picture of the good life, right? It's a life in which your work is not toilsome, your home life is flourishing, your community is prosperous prosperous and and peaceful, and you live to a ripe old age in which you get to see your grandchildren come into faith in a peaceful community of flourishing. In fact, the language of the psalm is, is such that it isn't just painting a picture of the good life, but it is promising the good life to, quote, everyone who fears the Lord, And these promises aren't just the the optimistic wishes of a Jewish poet from a few thousand years ago. They're deeply rooted in the tradition and history of Scripture. They're rooted in the heart of God, in the story and promise of God's covenant relationship with His people. And yet, when we come into contact with these sorts of promises of real blessing in the Bible in our time, I think we're tempted to make one of two errors in interpreting these things. The first error that, that I think we're tempted to do when we come into poetry like, like what we're seeing this morning is to take it extremely literally. And to turn this, and by this I mean not only this scripture, but really the faith as a whole into a moralistic and overly transactional set of religious truisms and like widget machines where if I input faith and, and obedience to the Lord, then he is duty-bound to output blessing to me, right? So I fear God, and he gives me the good life, and that's just the way it works, right? Well, not, not exactly right. But on the other hand, we're, we're tempted to fall on a totally other side of the spectrum. And honestly, I bet most of us in this room, if we've grown up in more evangelical traditions, are tempted in this direction, is that out of fear of being lumped in with false teachers of a prosperity gospel, which says that, that if I, if I give to the Lord, whether it's obedience or, or finances, then he's going to make me wealthy, healthy, happy, and have a house full of children and, and promotions at my job and, and a summer home in the mountains and, and all of those things because we're so afraid of being lumped in with people like that that when we read the scriptures about God really blessing us in this life, not just the next life, that, that we're terrified to engage with it and we just deny it as a reality, Right? but that's not right either, because all throughout the Bible, God tells his people that he will bless them if they fear him and walk in his ways. It's just consistent from Genesis to Revelation, and the wisdom literature in the Bible, which is the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon, and some of the Psalms, like the one we're reading today, is full of this sort of covenantal logic, that faithfulness to the Lord and faith in the Lord will yield blessedness in life. As Reed mentioned last week, there's just a rule of existence and order in the universe the way God has created it that we reap the things that we sow. And so this morning I want to look closely at the psalm and, and carefully at the psalm. I, I want to consider it in the context of its placement within the book of Psalms and within the Bible as a whole. I want to see what we can glean from it as wisdom literature to us as men and women in the new covenant under Christ seeking to walk in the ways of the Lord. And then I want to suggest that while this psalm has much to say about us as individuals and our households and our families, it has maybe even more to say about us as the church in relationship with God through the work of Jesus Christ. So contextually, Psalm 128, it sits within the Psalms of Ascent, and this is going to be shocking for you who know your numbers, between Psalm 127 and 129. And that's numerically obvious, but it's contextually important because Psalm 127 is rooted in this concept that no matter what we undertake in life, whether it's our jobs or our relationships or even rebuilding the temple in the city of Jerusalem following exile. The truth in Psalm 127 is that if God doesn't do the work that we are doing, then our labor is in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house, in vain the labor strive. So all good things in our life must be rooted in the work of God, must be dependent upon the strength of God. So we can work long days, we can forsake sleep, we can strive all we want, and if the Lord isn't at the center of it, Psalm 127 says, then we've wasted our time, and at the end we will have wasted our lives. Psalm 127, it's also this wisdom psalm that tells us that that God gives children to his people as a heritage from the Lord, and that they will be a supreme blessing from the Lord, which gives us strength and joy and help in our undertakings. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. And then Psalm 129, on the other side of things, is this psalm of cursing. It focuses on being this prayer where asking God to put to shame, and and utterly put to ruin the enemies of God and his kingdom. That all who would serve as impediments to the work of God and his kingdom would come to shame. And between those two concepts, we find Psalm 128, this psalm of blessing, and it finds much of its focus in the language of the ordinary, work and family. Now before we continue, I, I think it's worth mentioning that the Bible including, but certainly not limited to this psalm, has a lot to say about marriage and childbearing and the role that families play in the kingdom of God. See, God loves and champions families. The kingdom of God is described in Scripture as a family of families. And the local church is as well. We are a family of families. But but hear this this does not mean that God loves the married person more than he loves the single person or the widow. Nor does he love the family of six more than the couple struggling to conceive. Marriage, hear this church, it's not a graduation to a higher level of Christianity. And so whether you're single and you've believed that lie or you're married and you've perpetuated it, we need to stop. And parenting is not a step up from the simplicity of marriage. But God has designed the human race, and especially his covenant people, such that the vast majority of adults will and should, at some point in their life, be married, and that married Christians, in most cases, should pursue fruitful multiplication through childbearing, or at least the raising up of covenant children. And these are not rules and laws given to us by God, but they are generalities that the Bible assumes based upon the design of God in the very beginning when he made a man and a woman, and he caused two to become one, and then commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. And so even with this language of the psalm focusing on marriage and children, I want you to hear that there are general truths and wisdom for every person in this room to glean. This is not just a a psalm for the husband, even though in some ways it, it sounds like that. It begins like this. It says, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. The Proverbs tell us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and this psalm is telling us that it is also the beginning of blessedness. And blessedness is a biblical term to describe a fundamental happiness and contentedness, both in the realities of our lives and the depths of our souls. So to be blessed in the language of Scripture is to be full and happy, to be under the providing and loving care of God our Father. And blessedness is what the human heart yearns for. Every human heart is yearning for blessedness. We look for it in all sorts of things. Indeed, pretty much in everything we do, we're looking to experience some form of blessedness, which leads us to make some really good choices and some really bad choices, but ultimately we want to be blessed. And the Bible is clear that the way to be blessed is through the fear of the Lord. It is those who fear the Lord who are blessed. And fear of the Lord is not something that might yield blessing. It's not something where, like, if you're really good at fearing the Lord, then maybe God will bless you. It's a promise. Everyone who fears the Lord will be blessed. Everyone who fears the Lord will be blessed. But but fearing the Lord, it's rooted in in the outcome of the fear of the Lord, which is obedience. See, the logic of the psalmist, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. Like, the psalmist doesn't even understand that there's a remote possibility that you could fear the Lord and then not walk in his ways. It's not even possible. The one who fears Yahweh obeys Yahweh. They walk in His ways. Why? Because they understand His power and His love and and the necessity of being faithful to Him. And hear this, the fear of the Lord isn't like the fear that you might have of what's going to happen in the future, and it's not like the fear you had as a child of the dark or the monsters in your closet. It's this trembling understanding that God is the most wonderful and powerful and awesome and immense being in all the cosmos, and all of eternity, and so to resist his invitation to come to him would be utterly foolish. It instills within you a sense of fear. Like one should fear the result of resisting such an invitation from such a being. One should fear disappointing or experiencing his wrath. But the God we fear is not a God of whom we should be afraid. The God we fear is not a God of whom we should be afraid, but instead a God who's invited us in love to come near to him, to learn from him, to walk in his ways, and to participate in the fullness of his blessedness. And blessedness, according to the psalm, has something to do with our labor, with the work that we do. The one who is blessed will eat the fruit of the labor of his or her hands, and in this will be satisfied. So in the garden, Adam was given the task to work and keep the land and he was given the blessing of God to eat from every tree which bears fruit, except for one, right? So he was blessed by God and his labor would result in satisfaction and provision. And Paul tells us kind of inversely that the man who doesn't work should not eat, Right, because he knows the reality that that the man who does work in the kingdom of God will eat. It's a promise. We will eat of the fruit of our labor. It's It's a promise of the blessedness of God. The man who works as unto the Lord, or the woman who works as unto the Lord, will always eat. Will always be satisfied. God feeds the sparrow, Jesus says. He will surely feed his beloved one. His blessed ones, those who fear him and walk in his ways. And there's something beautifully redemptive about this psalm and talking about eating the fruit of our labor because while the original design in the garden was certainly what this psalm is talking about, the reality is that when Adam and Eve sinned, one of the things God did is he cursed the ground that Adam was to work and he said that Adam would toil all his days against thorns and thistles, and and that by the sweat of his brow, he he would eat bread. In other words, sin makes work harder and less fruitful. But in covenant relationship with God, in the redemptive work of Christ, in this relationship that's marked by our fear and faith and obedience, God will once again bless our labor. This doesn't mean we won't ever sweat. Those who sow in faith shall reap a good harvest. So so though we might sweat and toil at times, we will never labor in vain if we are laboring as unto the Lord. And that's true both of our careers and and our jobs that we do, but it's also true of the work that we do in the kingdom. It's it's true of the good works that we show in brotherly love and affection and the proclamation of the gospel. It's true of the work that we do in our homes when we build up our family or our roommates. In In relationship with God, our work becomes an outworking and evidence of our blessedness. It's not just this that we punch the clock at the beginning and the end of the day. It's it's actually this divine purpose that God has given us to do so that we could show the world the blessedness of God and so that we can experience the blessedness of God. This isn't a promise that that God's going to use our labor to make us all rich. Certainly not that but it does mean that you can display and experience the provision and majesty of God in your ordinary, everyday responsibilities. That deep meaning is given to all that you undertake. It means that now you can view the simplicity of having food in your pantry, not as evidence that you went to the grocery store, but evidence that the God of the universe loves you and he's taking care of you. And he's providing for you. And that when you labor, it's not in vain. The next section moves on. It says, your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The language of this psalm is now clearly addressed toward a man. Particularly a married man. And this God-fearing man of obedience is kind of an archetype in the Psalms, beginning in Psalm 1. And he, according to the Psalm, will have a wife who is a fruitful vine and children around his table who are like olive shoots, which olive shoots either grow up to bear flowers or fruit, both of which are, are lovely. At first, this seems to be a simple principle that God will give faithful men, families, marked by fruitfulness, implying multiplication through childbearing. And hear this. It's certainly true that a way that God blesses people is through allowing them to grow large families. Psalm 127 made that clear, and Psalm 128 is doing it too. And it's even a way in which the kingdom of God is grown. Like, we can see this as the self-evident reality that in any church that you walk in, the majority of the adults who are members of that church will have grown up in Christian homes versus growing up in non-Christian homes. Like God advances his kingdom through blessing his people with children who are raised up in the faith. But it's simplistic, and I believe it's unfaithful to read into this text an idea that the lack of a spouse or marriage or, or the lack of fertility within a marriage is the result of God's judgment or a curse. On the contrary, if you read Genesis to Revelation, what you'll see is that redemptive history that God has orchestrated is full of faithful men and women who have both been outsiders, lonely, and unable to feel attached to others and those who have been unable to conceive. God carries forth his purposes regardless of circumstance. He puts forth his blessing regardless of circumstance. And this is a a tough passage for for a lot of us in the room if we read it simplistically. It's a tough passage for me. I mean, the reality is, is that for the entirety of my marriage, it's been marked by infertility and miscarriage. And so the question becomes... Is my family deprived of the blessedness of God? Certainly not. Certainly not. It's it's made evident that it's not primarily and that we get to experience the fullness of the riches of God's love even in the midst of our circumstance, but also in the things that this psalm talks about. When I walk home and, and, and walk into my living room, I see my wife who is a fruitful vine. Not because she's born many children, but because she's a faithful woman whom the Lord has used to produce the fruits of his kingdom through the gifts that he has given her and the responsibilities with which he has entrusted her. She's like the woman in Proverbs 31 because she's clothed with strength and dignity. She has a heart of charity and wisdom. She provides for her household though my table is marked by only one child, that boy is an olive shoot. in that he is a young but full participant in the covenant community of God, being attended to in hope and expectation that there will be a day that he bears his fruit in his season. By becoming like the man in Psalm 128 or Psalm 1. In other words, he's It's true that the man who has a house full of children is blessed. That's absolutely true. But the psalm makes it clear at the beginning that everyone who fears the Lord is blessed. And so it doesn't become dependent upon circumstance, it only is dependent upon the Lord. What this psalm is calling us to is to see the ordinary things of our life, our work and labor and the realities of our home, that they are the blessings of God to us. They are marks of our blessedness. The homes of God's people are to be portraits of blessedness and places of peace and fruitful production. Our dinner tables should be a daily reminder of the Eucharist. Our work should be proclamations of the work of God on our behalf. Like, What if we started viewing all the ordinary things in our life this way? Parents in the room, what if you started viewing your children and everyone in the room, what if you just viewed the children in this church as beacons to us of the new life that God communicated to us at our baptism? What if we saw our husbands and wives as portraits of the covenantal love that God has given to us? For the unmarried in the room, what if you realized that God has given you the home you have right now with the roommates or friends who fill it right now as heavenly blessings meant to remind you of His love and your heavenly home which awaits you and not just a waiting place for something better? What if you saw your dinner table as the point from which you are sent to do the work of the kingdom and the point to which at the end of the day you find rest and refuge? Church, the world is a dangerous place. It's full of things that bite and sting, things that keel, steal, and kill, things that devour and deceive. But what if you labored faithfully in the fear of the Lord so that your home became to you a heavenly refuge from all those things? Not because it's a place to hide, but because it's a place to feast and to rest, a place to celebrate and pray place to plan and prepare for what God has next. See, as many of you know, I, I'm going through a particularly hard time in my life. I've been wrestling a lot with grief and suffering and exhaustion and fear, and yet what I've found is that the things that this psalm say are true. My home, this room, and my parish gathering have been the places where I felt able to breathe, able to hear from the Lord, able to be reminded that He's good and that He loves me. And that's not because I'm extremely spiritual or because God has particularly blessed me. It's just because that's the way God's made things to be. That the ordinary places of life and worship would be to us a blessing of sustenance and joy. There have been a lot of days that in the last couple months that I've come home after hours spent at the hospital with my mother who's ill to find my wife and my son sitting at my table a fruitful vine and an olive shoot and their very presence there has served as a love letter from God what if we viewed one another that way that that God has given us The covenant family, both in our physical homes and within the church, as as love letters to us of his blessing toward us. And what if we viewed ourselves as love letters toward one another where we are meant to proclaim to one another that, that God loves them? Would that transform the way that we think and the way that we experience others? See, church, I want you to hear this. Blessedness is not freedom from suffering in a world marred by sin. One day it will be. But for us today, blessedness is freedom within a world marked by sin and within suffering. And it's a freedom to rest in the Lord in the midst of that, to put our hope in him in the midst of that, to continue sitting at the table and feasting in the midst of that, to continue getting up to go to work in the midst of that. That is blessedness. The psalm ends this way. It says, the Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. The conclusion of this psalm kind of is a genre shift from, from promises of blessing to this, this hopeful benediction. It's a prayer, really, that, that God will bless his people from his throne For the length of days, that that from heaven, God will continually bless his people, that he will make his kingdom prosperous, that he will protect them, that he will give them length of life to see generations upon generations experience the peace and blessedness of his kingdom. In other words, it's a benediction that we would put all of our hope in the things to come and in the things that exist right now that we would put our hope in the blessings that God has given us now, but look forward to the fullness of that heavenly city, where there's ever prosperity and peace, where generations upon generations will be engrafted into the table of the Lord to feast with him forever. And I say amen to that. But the ending of this psalm also begins to show us something important about its writing, specifically as a psalm of ascent it really makes us begin to think that maybe the whole psalm wasn't primarily meant to be about individuals and in specific family units, but rather about the people of God coming out of exile and going up to the city of God to finally experience the fullness of the blessing of covenant renewal. See, the first four verses of the psalm are actually themes, and even direct language that's just ripped right out of Deuteronomy 28, which is this passage where prior to the people of Israel entering the promised land, God tells Moses to, to promise blessing to his people if they're faithful to the covenant. And that blessing looks like this, that you'll go into the land that God has prepared for you, that you will be fruitful and multiply, that your families will flourish, and that you will bless all the nations. So imagine the people of Israel coming out of exile after generations of suffering, of disobedience, of rebellion, of forgetting the promises of God, and going back up to their homeland where God dwells and remembering, oh, God's made promises to us. He's made promises that if we give ourselves to him, then we'll get everything in return. What an inspiring thought when we think about living as Christians in a world marked by suffering and sin. That we are ever journeying up toward that heavenly city knowing that there are promises that await us. So if you're suffering in this room, learn this song and sing it. Sing these promises along with your forefathers who did. But The Psalms are aren't just about the people of Israel and they're not just about us. Really, they're about Christ. All, all of Scripture is about Jesus. And so what I mean by that is, is this psalm says that blessed are those who fear the Lord and walk in His ways. And, and we can fear the Lord and we can walk in His ways, but as you know, if you've tried that for any amount of time, at times you'll fail. Right? At, at times, your fear of the Lord will waver. Your obedience will not be what you'd like it to be. And because we live in a world marked by suffering and, and sin and, and brokenness, our blessedness at times feels like it's in flux. Right? There's seasons where we can recognize it, where we glory in it, and there's seasons where it feels totally absent. Some of the portraits of blessedness in this psalm are things that you as an individual might not ever experience in this life. You might be without it. But Jesus is the truly blessed one. He's the truly blessed one who invites you into an eternity of his blessedness, not yours. He has feared the Lord perfectly, even unto death. He has obeyed the Lord perfectly, even unto death. And then he conquered death. He is the beloved son of God who is blessed to inherit the whole kingdom of heaven. He is the heavenly bridegroom who has a fruitful bride which is actually you, the church. And a table full of sons which are you, Christians. He is the one who has and gives eternal life. Peace to the world prosperity, and fruitfulness to his kingdom. And so while at first glance, the men in the room might think that this is a psalm about being a faithful head of your household, and it is. But even more, it's a psalm for all Christians about being a fruitful bride who sits at the table of our heavenly bridegroom, Jesus. See, because Christ has conquered the work of the bride of Christ, the church, will be blessed and fruitful. We can be a fruitful vine because we have been united to the blessed one, to the righteous one, to the holy one. Because Christ has feared the Lord, the table of the Lord will ever be full of the children of God, like olive shoots preparing to bear fruit in their season. Because Christ has walked in the ways of the Lord, there will always be peace in the kingdom of God. And generations upon generations of those who will experience the fullness of God's blessing. The blessing that is the forgiveness and love and affection of God toward men and women and children who don't deserve it. Blessed with food and family and belonging and gladness. So Psalm 128 is It's a song that teaches the church to hope and to be glad in and out of season. It's a song that teaches us that fearing God and walking in His his ways is always the catalyst toward living the good life. It's a song that proclaims that all Christ has inherited through His saving work has been given to us through faith because we are His family. It is in this mystery and miracle that our homes actually become heavenly. That our Sunday gatherings are so enticing that the scriptures say that angels long to look on at what we're doing in the room this morning. It's through this mystery and miracle of Christ that our dining room tables become both daily bread where we realize that God has provided for us and the eternal bread of life in which we realize that God will ever feast with us. So yes, it's true. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. And so my only invitation for you this morning is that you would fear the Lord. Fear the Lord of love. Heed his invitation to come into his courts. Do not delay. His invitation is sealed not with, melted wax, but with the blood of his son, whom he has given up to pay the way for you to have a place at his table forever. And it's the only place where blessedness really exists, where it can truly be counted on. And so let's come to him. Let's come to him now. Let's pray. Father, would you, would you renew our minds and our hearts? to view the lives that you've given us, the seasons that you've given us even today to walk through, the circumstances that you've placed us in as places where you communicate your blessedness toward us. Not because we have all of the things that we would want, but because we have you and that you provide for us all of the things that we need. Pray that we would view our life as blessing because it's life with you and it is everlasting life with you. For those in the room this morning who who came in hurting or suffering or tired or weak, would you proclaim to them your steadfast love for them? Would you allow them to see the things that that you've given them in, in their life as blessing, but also would you show them a portrait of your heavenly city that awaits us? that everlasting home free from suffering and sin and toil would you make us men and women who labor faithfully as unto you and see the fruit of your kingdom come to pass through justice being done and people coming to know you through the work of your son Lord would you feed us at your table this morning and would it truly sustain us it's in Jesus name